Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell, and this is the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. So we're in the second part of what will be at least a three-part series that I'm calling Illegal Voices in Poetry. Last time we talked about the poem to the Earl of Dartmouth by Phyllis Wheatley, And Phyllis Wheatley, of course, is exceptional in many ways. She was not only a slave when she wrote most of her major poetry, but she was also the first black woman to have a book published in America. So she is sort of the official beginning of African-American literature. She's one of the first slave voices in American literature. She's just an awesome example of what happens when you have literary genius that springs up and can't be contained by the oppressive legal forces, by the oppressive cultural forces. And that's something I want to look at in another poet today, in fact, in a poet who was very influential upon Wheatley, and that's Alexander Pope. Now, it might feel weird to go from Phyllis Wheatley to Alexander Pope. If you know anything about Pope, Pope has been one of the most beloved and revered and conventional and canonical poets of all of English history. Pope is almost a joke in some circles because of how standard his poetic voice is. He was a master of the rhyming couplet. He was pithy to the point of being the epitome of pithiness. He wrote a verse that was very cultured, that was called neoclassical, in that it looked back to writers like Horace and Virgil for its inspiration. It's weird to think of Pope as an illegal voice, but in fact, for all of his life, Pope was legally marginalized. Let's talk a little bit about Pope's context. So Pope is born in 1688, soon after the death of John Milton. We've just had the English Civil War. We've had the Glorious Revolution. We have, in Pope's lifetime, a movement from Queen Anne, the beloved Queen Anne, to the reign of the Georges, or the Georgian Age, the Hanoverian Dynasty. Pope was, as his name might indicate, a Roman Catholic during this period. England was becoming more and more Protestant, moving further and further away from even the Church of England high Anglicanism of the age of Elizabeth, of the age of people like John Donne and Lancelot Andrews. It was moving much more toward the English Protestantism that we associate with Uh, the age of the American Revolution and then Victorian England after that. But Pope was Catholic. Pope was born to a Catholic family, and Pope was actually educated in illegal Catholic schools growing up. Now, these Catholic schools were technically illegal, but because they were educating children, as far as I've understood from the research, the English government kind of turned a blind eye toward them. They didn't quite care that Catholic children were being taught to read and write or being taught very basic arithmetic or things like that. It didn't bother them. What they really didn't want, though, the powers that be in England, were for Catholics to go into higher education and thus be equipped for having a say in British culture, being equipped to have a say, especially in British government. Of course, it wasn't until 1832, I believe, that Catholics were given some rights when it came to legal standing in Britain. I don't think even in the Reform Bill of 1832, though, Catholics were allowed to 
be members of parliament. That, in fact, takes place much later. So Pope grows up going to illegal schools, and then when he's of age to go to Oxford or Cambridge with his uh, Anglican compatriots, he's not allowed to go legally. And so he has to basically homeschool himself in college. And he reads, of course, Virgil and Horace in Latin. In fact, his education is a lot like Phyllis Wheatley's education. It's at home. It's very much directed by his own interests. And the only major writer, I think, that uh, Wheatley is reading that Pope isn't reading is, in fact, Pope himself. So Pope begins imitating these writers he's reading, especially people like Horace, and he starts writing a poetry that's very pithy, as I said before. He loves the rhyming couplet. To err is human, to forgive divine. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. These lines are lines from Pope. In fact, both of those lines are from Pope's essay on criticism, which was published in 1711 and was one of his first major works. And it kind of put him on the map, not just as an important poet, but as an important voice in literary criticism. Pope is sort of a preeminent poet critic. He's not just having his head in the creative clouds like someone like William Blake uh, or even someone like Shakespeare. Shakespeare writes lots and lots and lots of poetry, as we know, but no official criticism. Pope himself does write criticism, and he's one of the most important voices in critical history. Pope loved making fun of people. And I think this comes from his status as an official legal outsider. In fact, when he's of age and begins to write in his poetic career, London law forbids his residence in London because he's Catholic. And there's such worry about Catholic influence on the seats of uh, economic, the seats of cultural, and especially the seats of political power in London, that Catholics have to live out in the countryside. Very famously, the uh, country manor that Pope lives in, he found this subterranean cave that had been carved out of the rock by a river. And he set up kind of an art studio slash hangout grotto for he and his literary friends. He decorated the cave with little beads and bits of glass and put couches down there, and they would have literary parties where they would uh, talk about art and literature. Maybe he would invite a painter in, and they would discuss the painter's work. So Pope kind of made the best of his illegal status, and in fact, by the standards of the day, certainly lived a life of privilege, but it was a privilege that was won despite legal disenfranchisement. Pope also began to be friends with, and I think sort of drew to him, a lot of the major political dissenters of his day. The great and really the first prime minister of Britain, uh, I understand from, from reading about British history, was this guy named Walpole, Robert Walpole. And his regime was kind of everything that Pope and Pope's friends didn't like. Pope and Pope's friends wanted a strong monarch back. They thought that the prime minister and parliament had way too much power. Of course, this goes back to the classic 17th century argument between the Puritans and the Anglo-Catholics uh, or the Cavaliers and the Roundheads in the English Civil War. Now, I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to go into much more detail than this, except to say Pope 
loved the idea, both as a political thinker and as a Roman Catholic thinker, of a strong moral leader being the king, not the prime minister, not the parliament. And so one of the things that Pope considered more and more as he got older and older was writing a poem that celebrated the great king, the great king who is a moral leader, who brought order and moral example to the messed up state, uh, the unjust state of Britain in the 18th century. So Pope actually wrote out a description of an epic that he would write that would be called Brutus. Now, Brutus isn't referring to the Brutus that we all think of in Roman history, which is uh, the Brutus who helps kill Caesar. Brutus was actually the name of the historical slash legendary, uh, I'll let the historians decide about this one, the legendary founder of Britain or of the British race. Apparently, and this story will sound familiar, so hold on for a moment, Apparently, there was a guy named Brutus who was a Trojan who escaped the Trojan War who decided to set out to find a homeland for his exiled Trojan people. Now, if you're thinking, wait, that sounds a lot like Aeneas, you're right. The story of Brutus was very much in imitation of the story of Aeneas or maybe the other way around. And like I said, I'll let the people who study ancient legends and their influences decide that. But either way, there was this story that had been around for a very long time in Britain that it was, in fact, this Trojan Brutus who had founded the, the British race in Britain. And Pope decided he would write an epic called Brutus. And he, he mapped it all out, and you can even find quotations from his private notes where he mapped it all out. Well, long story short, and I know you're probably thinking, when are we going to get to the poetry? Long story short, Pope wrote a total of eight and a half lines of this epic. And it's been an interest of mine for a number of years now to do some study of the Brutus Fragment, which this poem is called. And so I'm going to read the Brutus Fragment for you, and I want to think about it, especially in connection to this idea that Pope himself was an illegal Catholic voice in Britain during his lifetime. And in fact, it wasn't just that he was Catholic, he was a dissenter against the whole direction of English political structure, both he and his friends. And this Brutus fragment, I think, speaks to that and is a great example of just a little beautiful snippet of 17th century, 18th century neoclassical verse. So here is the eight and a half lines. Brutus, the patient chief who laboring long arrived on Britain's shores and brought with favoring gods, arts, arms, and honor to her ancient sons, daughter of memory from elder time recall. And me, with Britain's glory fired, me, far from meaner care or meaner song, snatched to the holy hill of spotless bay, my country's poet, to record her fame. Say first, what cause that power, and then it breaks off. We actually have that power, and then he started to write the word has, but we only have the H recorded. So I'm going to read again up through line eight. I, I won't read again the fragmentary line, but I want, to, I want to give you a picture of what 
people after Pope's death found in his notes. They found this, and in fact, it wasn't published for a long time. It was only really in the early 20th century that people started to take an interest in this fragment and include it in Pope's works. But I find it very, very interesting. It's written, we think, in the 1740s, early 1740s. Pope died in 1744. Pope was never in very good health. Famously, Pope was very short. I think he was about four feet, ten inches tall. Uh, his growth had been stunted by uh, certain health problems he had had in his youth. So Pope was a bit of an eccentric figure, and uh, sadly his poor health meant that he never got to finish Brutus. People think he would have written it if his health had been better. But let's look at these first eight lines again. The patient chief, who laboring long arrived on Britain's shores, and brought with favoring gods, arts, arms, and honor to her ancient sons, daughter of memory, from elder time recall, and me with Britain's glory fired, me far from meaner care or meaner song, snatched to the holy hill of spotless bay, my country's poet to record her fame. If we think about epic history and we think about these famous opening lines, especially of the classical epics, we have the Iliad that starts with rage goddess sing of the rage of the son of Peleus Achilles, uh, the opening of um, the Odyssey, the man of twists and turns speak muse. We have the Aeneid, arms in the man I sing, an exile far from Troy. Pope himself is obviously continuing in this vein, but his hero, his hero for the 18th century, is a little different in character from Achilles, Odysseus, and Aeneas. Achilles is the man of rage. Odysseus is the man of twists and turns, the polutropon, the many ways. Aeneas ends up being the man of piety, the man of duty, but also the man of war. In fact, the first word of the Aeneid isn't the man or sing muse, it's arms or martial arms in particular. Sometimes that's just translated war and the man. Here, Pope is giving us a portrait in miniature of a new type of hero, the patient chief who laboring long arrived on Britain's shores and brought with favoring gods arts, arms, and honor to her ancient sons. So first of all, we, we learn that the primary quality that's being highlighted in these opening lines of Brutus, this leader of the Trojan men, this founder of the British race, his chief attribute here is not that he's a great warrior. It's not that he's many-wayed or a man of a brilliant mind like, like Odysseus. He's patient. Patience is something that Achilles probably could have used. And in fact, in Pope's notes for Brutus, there's a younger sort of sidekick that Brutus has, who is the impetuous one. He's always running off to danger or running off to avenge a wrong. Or uh, I think there's a point where there's uh, a beautiful maiden who wants 
uh, him to go on a quest for her. And so he goes, but Brutus is always saying, ah, 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 be careful. Ah, be careful. Apparently there's another impetuous knight that wants to enslave the people that they meet in Britain when they first arrive there. And Brutus says, well, no, that's, that, that's not what we need to do. We need to think about it. So Brutus is this patient man. And apparently the other quality, and we don't get this word here, but the other quality Pope wanted to talk about in Brutus was his benevolence, that he was gifting things. And even the word, though the word benevolent doesn't appear in these first eight lines, we do have a benevolent action. The patient chief who laboring long arrived on Britain's shores and brought with favoring gods, arts, arms, and honor to her ancient sons. So he's patient and he brings to the ancient sons favoring gods, arts, arms, and honor. And I think that list is really important and shows, reveals, in its iambic structures and in its ordering the things that matter to Pope, especially to Pope as an older man now, as a man who's had many years of being not just out of political favor, but legally marginalized. What is it that the patient chief brings? Well, first he brings favoring gods, religion, especially uh, blessed religion, religion that favors and blesses. That's what's foremost in this leader. He brings favoring gods. Second, he brings arts. Now, we might think, okay, religion and strong military presence uh, are in fact what, uh, what Aeneas brings. Aeneas is a very pious man. Uh, of course, very famously, he's uh, distracted by Dido, but then is reminded by Mercury that he in fact has to obey the gods uh, and go found the Roman race. So he is too a man of piety. He too is a man who brings favoring gods. But the next thing he does is win at battles. Not so with Brutus. Brutus, the next thing he brings are arts. This is a more peaceful focus. And also, uh, a creative focus. He's not bringing gods and diplomacy. He's bringing gods and arts. Third, we do get arms. So Brutus, and apparently this was going to happen pretty late in the epic, Brutus does end up having enemies he has to defeat. I think there are uh, a race of giants that uh, are threatening Brutus and the new friends he makes when he gets to Britain. And so they team up and fight the giants. It's a very sort of a, a superhero uh, movie, last act kind of thing. So he does bring arms. Those are part of it. He will fight if he needs to, but religion and the arts are more primary to him. And fourth, there's honor that's brought. And this is where I think Pope's 18th century-ness shines through. Pope wanted Brutus to be this civilizing influence on these native peoples who lived in Britain. And I think now it's hard to read that without thinking of British colonialism and, in fact, the things that were going on in the 1700s between British colonial powers in the Americas and the erasure of, of uh, First Nations and native cultures in the Americas. And so I think Pope perhaps doesn't satisfy us 
in as much as he seems to have a little bit of that attitude that, oh, if only a civilized man would come among the uncivilized, they would all be so happy that he came and gave them more civilized manners and things like that. That, that rings, I think, a little, a little frustrating to us these days. But it's something that he saw in Brutus. He wanted Brutus to be the man that kind of gives a whole culture and establishes a whole culture, religion, art, arms and honors, honorable living and manners, civilization to these people. And now he does something interesting that is once again playing into the grand epic tradition. He says, okay, this is the guy I'm going to talk about. This is the man of religion, of the creative arts, of battle, of honors. He's going to bring to Britain's coast all these important things, but he's going to bring it patiently, not impetuously. Then he turns to himself, and this is where it gets particularly interesting. I, I've said before on this podcast that whenever a poet starts talking about poetry or about being a poet, that's when our ears prick up because we're getting some insider information. We're, we're getting what the poet thinks he's doing. And whenever I think a practitioner, especially a genius like Wheatley or Pope, give us an insight into why are they writing and what is their conception of themselves, that, that's, that's really exciting in my mind. So he says, daughter of memory, another term for the muse, from elder time recall. So first of all, he's calling on the muse to recall this. After all, if Brutus did live, it was soon after the Trojan War. This is, well, thousands of years before Pope is writing. If Pope is writing in the 1740s and the Trojan War happened, I don't know. As far as I've read, somewhere in between 1200 and 1000 BC, it's been a couple thousand years. So the daughter of memory is from an elder time recalling. Actually, in Pope's manuscript, he had written daughter of memory, instructive muse recall, and then he crossed out instructive muse. Uh, it's great. It's not, it's not as good as from elder time recall. Uh, instructive muse is a, little bit, uh, is a little bit redundant with daughter of memory. So he crosses out instructive muse and writes from elder time. And in fact, he also crosses out elder. Uh, most editors save that because you take that out, it's only eight syllables, and it would be iambic tetrameter instead of iambic pentameter. So we, we save that in, most editors do. But of course, maybe Pope had another word. It's one of the weird things when we find a poem in draft uh, that wasn't uh, a fair copy. It wasn't written to be, this is the publishable version, because we have actually these alternate readings we could do. But Clearly, Pope wanted to focus on from time, from the past, recall this. And so we can say this for sure. He wants us to think of the fact that this is being pulled up into the present from the past. And this is where I think the political angle is very interesting. It's not just that he's giving us this picture of Brutus as the strong king, maybe the kind of king that Pope and his friends don't think Britain has anymore. They look at the Hanoverian kings, uh, George I and George II. They're no patient chiefs. They're, they're no Brutuses. They want a new king who's more like the patient chief. But he's doing something interesting. He's saying, Brutus is the old one. We need to call back up the past. And in fact, uh, people like Walpole were celebrated for 
for avoiding the problems of the past, for moving into a newer and brighter and freer future uh, and more Protestant future for England. And so in trying to drag up this ancient hero from the past, Pope is saying, no, 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 hold on. It's the past that informs us. It's the past that has the best stories, has the best figures. The present needs the past. And me, he says, is where he gets to himself, and me with Britain's glory fired, me far from meaner care or meaner song. That's interesting. Me with Britain's glory fired, me far from meaner care or meaner song. You could say that there are two me's there, but really he says me, me, and then he repeats me the me sound two more times with the meaner care, meaner song. Um, I, it's a little silly to say, but I'll say it because Pope liked making fun of other people in his work, so I'll make fun of Pope a little bit. Pope is almost saying me, 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 me here. Uh, we've talked uh, before about uh, sometimes the uh, self-aggrandizement that poets do in their work. And here he's really pointing to himself, me, I'm going to do this. Me, help me. And he reminds the muse, and he's really reminding his reader, I think especially his reader who might be a little worried about his political loyalties. Me, he says, with Britain's glory fired. He's reminding us, no, 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 I, I want Britain's glory. In fact, I'm fired with Britain's glory. If you see in my poetry, Pope seems to imply, if you see in my poetry something that might make you think I'm anti-Britain, that's not true. I'm anti-Walpole. I'm anti-Hanoverian dynasty. I'm not anti-Britain. In fact, it's because I love Britain that I'm this dissenter. It's because I love Britain that I seem to be doing these things that go against the current regime. We might today call this, in the 20th century or 21st century, we might call this poetry of resistance. It's a tricky thing to do, and I think in choosing to do this little series on illegal voices, it's something I run into. I'm wary as both a poet and as someone who practices literary criticism, I'm wary of poetry of opposition and poetry of resistance, partly because I think sometimes the voice of resistance or voice of opposition is badly imitated or unfairly or unduly taken on by a poet in order to seem better at poetry or more important or more essential to read than the poet actually is in themselves. For instance, I think a lot of very overtly political poetry today is long on the politics and long on the hot topics of the day and very short on poetic craft. And one of the things that Pope shows here is Pope is writing perfect blank verse, which in fact wasn't a form that uh, blank verse is unrhymed iambic pentameter. That's not a form Pope usually wrote in. In fact, some critics have said this might be the only or the longest number of lines that Pope wrote in blank verse that we have. This is actually a poetic experiment, and he's showing that he can do it awesomely. Pope was enamored, as I said before, of the rhyming couplet, which Shakespeare was enamored of too, but Milton thought was uh, a little too jokey, a little too uh, pithy, uh, a little too flippant to use in his major work. So Pope here is imitating Milton and Shakespeare when Shakespeare's doing blank verse. So 
Pope is doing something that I think a lot of our poets, especially young poets who want to sound edgy and political, aren't willing to do. He's putting his political ideals in very traditional form in a traditional genre, the epic, and is slyly offering a political vision and a poetic vision that's in contrast to the regime and legal structures of his day. Let's look at the last lines and then be done. He says, Snatch to the holy hill of spotless bay, my country's poet, to record her fame. So, once again, there's some conventionalness here. Snatch to the holy hill of spotless bay, the bay trees grow on the hill of the muses or the mountain of the muses. He wants to record his country's fame. But who is going to be snatched? His country's poet. This is a doubling down on, I'm for my country, I'm a British poet, I know all the schools I went to were illegal because I was Catholic. I know I'm not allowed to go to college because of my religion. I know I'm not allowed to live in London, kind of the center of the English-speaking world, because I'm Catholic. But darn it, I am my country's poet. And you know what? History remembers him as his country's poet, as the greatest British poet of his age. So Pope, for all of his audacity, and during his lifetime, he even got death threats and sometimes would walk around with loaded pistols and a big hunting dog by his side because he knew people didn't like him and his opinions, which he spoke loudly, even though he faced all that opposition. When he says he's his country's poet, we've said, okay, Pope, you're right. You are your country's poet. So this has been a poem from a weird corner of Pope's works. It's not one of his major works. Most of his major works are very long. But it's a little poem that gives us a picture into what can be done by a voice that's writing with political and legal strictures against it that can be sly in some ways, that can be bold in some ways, that can outlast the regimes that repress it and continue to both befuddle, perhaps frustrate, and hopefully inspire us today. Thank you. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School.